the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 347. I'm Paul Spain. And I'm Sean Quincy. Sean, thank you very much for joining the show. Oh, no, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great. Thank you for having me. Now, your first time on the show, so I think you probably should fill people in at least where you fit into the the technology world, and then we can dive on uh, further from there. Yeah, sure, no problem. Look, um, I probably fit more into the fintech side of the uh, technology world. I spent uh, seven years with a company called the Transaction Services Group, which is a uh, large recurring payments platform in New Zealand. Um, uh, that's now operating in Australia and the, the US. And uh, more recently, I've moved home from uh, San Francisco and uh, started a company called Genoa Pay. So I've been uh, in an accelerator run by the ICEHOUSE called the Flux Accelerator Program and uh, just closing our uh, first round of, of, of funding at the moment to uh, to take on the world and uh, try and dominate with a tech startup. Excellent. Great. Well, very keen to hear about that during the show. Um, maybe to start with, some people will find your name familiar um, because of something that you did sort of quite outside of the tech space. Yes, um, yep. R- remind, remind listeners what, <laughs> what, why, why they may remember yeah, your sh- name. Sure, look, um, about seven years ago, I spent 54 days rowing the Tasman Sea um, solo, so a little bit about my background is my father was actually the first person to row the Tasman Sea back in 1977. It took him 63 days, and he's still the only person to have, uh, to have done it. And, um, and so I thought, well, why not be the first person to go in the other direction um, and row from Australia to New Zealand? And so seven and a bit years ago now, I decided, well, that's what I was going to do and uh, took on the Tasman, and uh, it was a, a pretty gnarly challenge and uh, pretty similar to, to doing a startup action in a number of ways. You sort of sometimes don't know where you're going or and you're working incredibly hard and you're getting pushed backwards and the storms and all sorts and uh, but yeah that was uh, probably where a few more New Zealanders know about Sean Quincy than uh, uh, than the company Genoa at the moment. Yeah, well, I've uh, I've seen your what did you call it a kayak of of, yeah, of sorts. Yeah, I guess it's a, um, it was a rowing boat. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, so seven point three meters long, one point eight meters wide, um, ocean rowing boat, and yeah, um, yeah. you had a small cabin on the back and a small cabin at the front as well. Um, so it was more of a boat, but yeah, she was she was a pretty big, slow yeah. thing, about eight hundred kilos. So um, yeah, it was a bit bigger than a kayak. Yeah, um, is that still at the the Maritime uh, Museum in Auckland? Yeah, um, so it's uh, at the Maritime Museum, and my father's boat's also there as well. So I always think his boat's far more impressive to look at than mine because of uh, just the the enormity and challenge of what he accomplished in 1977. He, he was in an open boat. It's just a dinghy, basically. He slept, slept in a, a small tube, which was at the back of the boat, which filled up with water every night. And um, so what uh, what I look at his trip and think, wow, that was a true adventure. Um, with my trip, there was GPS tracking. There was We knew where we were down to the centimetre, basically. But for Dad's trip, he disappeared, and 63 days later, he showed up again. There was no <laughs> satellite phones, no navigation. It was all um, you know celestial navigation, so using the stars. So really cool, um, real massive adventure on his behalf. 
how high was your confidence in success going going into it? Because this is a sort of thing where some people don't come out alive, right? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah, in two thousand and seven, a guy passed away trying to do do the ex- expedition as well. So that was a big reminder for me that it can be you know can be pretty dangerous out there. Um, uh, very, I was pretty confident in my ability to to achieve the the result. I knew it was going to be very hard, but um, I felt that I'd mitigated all the risks I could. Um, that fundamentally was a case of just hanging on and persevering, um, and we were going to get there eventually. So that was, I was pretty confident. I think that we were going to get there. Whether I was going to hit New Zealand or not was a was a different story because of the the storms and everything we were facing along the way. We almost missed a number of times, um, or could have been blown off course a number of times. But um, and there's nothing more embarrassing than potentially missing a country. So, <laughs> um, so that was pretty pretty scary sometimes. But yeah, we got there in the end. Cool. Now I'm sure there will be at least a, a smidgen of curiosity amongst uh, listeners about what technology that you had. For your journey, we're looking back seven years ago. So, uh, 2010 technology was was somewhat different. That time, we forget how quickly things actually advance. But you know, run us through what what did you have? Satellite phone? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, if I look at my, I guess my, my tech stack <laughs> to getting across yeah. the Tasman, um, the the coolest thing I think we had on the boat was a, a system called Track Plus, um, and Track Plus has now evolved and used on airplanes, so they can track airplanes pretty accurately. And um, I guess it was the first type of. Um, they had sort of gyroscopes inside these little units so they could measure if you were if the boat was inverted or not. So it would set off an alarm if the boat flipped upside down, uh, which it did a couple of times and send an alert to our website, which we were running at the time, which seven years ago was pretty slick tech. Um, yeah. So people could track exactly where I was, um, and there's there's no shortage of applications now that do that. Um, but back then that was that was pretty unique, and it was this massive great unit which was bolted onto the top of the boat, which would uh, uh, push a live feed to our website and show people exactly where we were going. And so did you have a range of sort of triggers set up for if certain things happened that, you know, that they were going to come and come and try and yeah, rescue you. How, how did you uh, pre- yeah. prepare for those type of scenarios? Because with somebody having died, you know, so you know, just a, just three years before yep. you went on your journey, I'm sure there would have been a huge amount of concern around how to make sure that you were you were safe. Yeah, absolutely, um, and and. Uh, there is a massive risk in that you're just by yourself. So if you fall overboard and the boat goes and it shoots off in one direction, you're not going to catch it and you're, you're done, really. So you you build uh, steps into mitigating all the risks and you, know, you start off with, okay, when I'm out on the deck of the boat, um, I'm, always tied, I'm always tied onto the boat. So that's rule number one. And then always tied to your life jacket. You've got a small EPIRB, which is an... Um, Look, I can't remember quite what what EPIRB stands for, but it's an emergency response beacon, basically. So um, we always had a mini one of those attached to me the entire time and had another one of those attached to the boat as well. Right. Um, those, those, those are great, aren't they? Because, 
you know, they, they work anywhere and they yeah. can, they can send a signal back, sort of, you know, indicating, absolutely, um, you know, indicating where you are, right? Yeah, down to the, and they're the, the recent ones. And actually back then, even they were pretty slick and that they could locate you down to sort of a few hundred meters. So, so I was pretty lucky in that regard that if I did fall overboard, then as long as nothing ate me, um, then, you know, there'd generally be someone to come and rescue me. But, right. the, so those work by sending a signal up to you know satellite with a with a GPS type location is yeah roughly, so roughly how they work because they my, work anywhere yeah right? you don't you don't need any sort of traditional yep. um, you know network type coverage that's so it that's right so most emergency rescue coordination centres will have the technology or the Orion that the Air Force has um, will have the technology to be able to zone in on the particular signal that the EPIRB generates um, yeah. and now I'm a little rusty on the, that tech the and I'm sure it's changed yeah. but um, yeah. yeah that sends out a, a signal which can be triangulated to a particular position and you can get picked up on that pretty quickly mm. um, so how it transmits that I'm not quite sure um, but um, that look I wouldn't be I wouldn't be without one now if I was riding the Tasman Sea again yeah, yeah. Well, I certainly know, you know, of of friends who uh, uh, have those for, you know, if they're if they're going bush sort of thing, and yeah, uh, yeah. you know, going hiking and uh, yeah. mountaineering and, and and so on. It's, uh, it's yeah. a pretty important sort of kit to ha- have with you, right? Yeah, there was another great piece of kit too, and that was a, a local company called uh, called Vespa Marine, and that was called an AIS system, which is automatic identification, which. Um, one of the biggest risks out on the Tasman is the container ships mowing over you. And this particular system would, um, it would triangulate the GPS signal plus the VHF radio signals from the container ships so you'd know exactly in what direction they were heading, how fast they were moving and you know, where you had to move to get out of the way. Um, so that was quite a neat piece of uh, technology that was pretty new at the time as well and it sent an alarm off to tell me to get back on the oars and, and move move like heck to get the boat out of the how way. How many times did that happen? About three or four times. Um, yeah, okay. But generally the boats weren't coming towards me. They were sort of within a five-kilometre sort of way they were going to hit me. But if you are on the way, those uh, the container ships are moving at about 50 kilometres an hour when they're at full steam, and they take sort of four or five miles to stop. So it can be quite a, uh, <laughs> quite a serious situation if you do need to move out of the way. Um, yeah. 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 And uh, satellite phone. How did how did you use that? What sort of communications did you did you do from uh, yep. from out there on the Tasman? So the worst part about the Iridium network back in those days was um, how expensive it was. They just had this massive monopoly, and um, you know Motorola had lost their um, dominance in the market with cell phones, and so they would bought Iridium, I believe, the Iridium network for a huge dollar amount, so they could just create this satellite phone monopoly. It was about thirty six dollars a minute. Yeah, I remember well. Iridium went uh, went went bust, didn't they? And then yeah. someone you know bought it up for uh, uh, you know yeah something ne- happened. next to nothing comparatively, but uh, uh, still a very very expensive uh, network to yeah to have. And I guess we get used to these costs just keep keep coming down. And, yes, uh, they certainly yeah. have done. But yeah. so thirty six dollars a minute. Yeah, at my stage. phone bill when I came back was eleven thousand US dollars. So look, oh. um, probably show, tells you two things about me. I like a good chat and uh, <laughs> and but just very expensive. So satellite phone was this big piece of kit and. Um, that you'd, you'd almost feel like you needed to wind up with a hamster. It was this big thing, and uh, you'd have to have uh, sky visibility to be able to use it. Um, and then it was generally just a normal dial-up the international code, and and you could actually hear on it pretty clearly through the sat phone. It was quite a good connection. Um, I guess there's not too much atmospheric 
uh, challenges in the middle of the Tasman Sea. Um, but yeah, it was great, except for the bill when I got home. And did you do did you do any data through it? Did you do emails no. and so on? No, I look, I I really bootstrapped that whole campaign. Um, so I would have loved to have done some data, but generally I just took photos on a digital camera and um, loaded them up to my little HP laptop I had on board, which I kept in a dry bag and. Um, and uh, and just loaded them up and took tons of photos and video footage off that and uh, um, stored it all up t- until we came home. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Would you do it again? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, look, I've got two kids now, so to get a leave pass might be a little bit challenging, but yeah. um, but generally it was a it was a it was a great challenge, um, and it was it was cool. So yeah, I'd do something like that again for sure. Oh, that's great. Oh, thank you for for sure sharing a bit of uh, that's definitely a, a unique uh, story. So very cool. No worries. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the topics of the week. Um, Broadpone. Uh, this is something that came up uh, earlier on in the, in the month as a topic that's going to be uh, spoken about at uh, Black Hat, uh, which is coming up uh, this week. Um, very well known uh, hackers event and. Already we saw uh, Google respond very quickly with with updates for, uh, for, for their phones, such as the Pixel phone, um, the Pixel handsets, and uh, we've just seen Apple launch their iOS updates, which the mainstream media have sort of jumped on and, uh, you know, encouraging people to update their, their phones. Um, well, I thought we'd just have a quick chat about this because, particularly here in New Zealand, but... I guess it's it's really everywhere around the world. Android is just so dominant, and we still have a bit of a bit of a challenge with a lot of Android handsets that don't manage to get necess- you know necessarily uh, security updates very quickly. And the the particular uh, challenge here is with with um, uh, the vulnerabilities in the Broadcom chipset, which is very common across. Lots of devices, including you know, iPhones, Samsung phones, HTC, you know, a whole mix of uh, Android uh, devices. Uh, a, lot, a lot of those uh, devices just aren't going to maybe ever see an update, and uh, other ones going to take quite some time. Um, yeah. So it's kind of not a not a super nice position to be in, is it? Now, knowing that your uh, uh, your phone could be compromised in in some way, you probably wouldn't necessarily even know about it but uh, somebody could take control of your phone at some point yeah i think so and look um for me being in a fintech payment space um we lean on the security basically people have with their devices and their independent devices so the ability for someone to hack in there and control someone's ability to pay for things look it's a very scary and massive vulnerability and as a as an owner of a, a payments application, I would almost be inclined to say, well, let's restrict access to some of those phones which aren't getting those updates because that's fundamentally a risk for our business. Um, so for the users of those particular um, phones, it's you know it might actually limit the functionality in those phones eventually because application owners and software providers might just say, look, your phone's not safe. Um, so it's quite an interesting space and, and that's pretty damaging for the manufacturers too if... If their users and their uh, the owners of those devices can't access the the particular tools that makes them so cool, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a real uh, a real a real challenge, and yeah, something really Apple's the you know the only company that seems to um, you know have a complete handle on it because they control 
all you know all of the devices as well as the software side. So you know, you, you look at uh, you look at Google. Um, yeah, they've got control over their own devices, but of course, most devices are made by Samsung or, or someone else. Uh, I was having a look on my S8 a few minutes ago to see, you know, what's the latest update that's that's come through on on the device, and yeah, there hasn't been anything that's come in oh, uh, this month. So um, yeah, I'll put my hand up and say that uh, that that device is uh, is is a little bit of a risk. Yeah. Far uh, so out. what do I do? Do I turn off uh, Wi-Fi? Will that entirely uh, protect me? You know, hopefully. But uh, well, in that case, I've got a I've got two degrees unlimited SIM in there. So that's probably actually one of the few scenarios where you could be reasonably relaxed about turning off Wi-Fi because I can do everything over the mobile network. Um, yes. Yeah. If I was roaming, that situation would change pretty quickly. I yeah, definitely. Getting, if you're traveling and roaming uh, or something know. like that, you wouldn't want to have it on. I mean, I've got my um, my iPhone updating right now, the, the 10.33 uh, update to yes. uh, make sure it's all nice and secure. But um Yes, certainly. I don't have a, a Samsung or an Android-based device at the moment, um, but I'd, I'd like to think an update was pretty was coming pretty quickly. Yes. Well, we will uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to turn this off right uh, right now. Not that I, I you know I, I actually I don't think the risk is particularly high right now. To be to be fair, yeah. Uh, but you know, I think over the coming days and weeks. Yeah, particularly after uh, Broadpone has been spoken about at Black Hat, more information has been revealed. Mm. We'll get a better picture on you know, just how risky is that. Last week we were, we were talking um, around the new handsets from Vodafone, which have you know, come in with uh, current versions of you know, and- Android 7 and 7.1 on them. They've got a fingerprint reader on uh, uh, their $200 uh, model and, and up. So, you know, quite... Quite uh, quite nice, uh, but it'll be interesting to see how you know how Vodafone, for instance, are able to uh, uh, to cater to this with with those handsets. I yes. think they said that there. Um, yeah, we've already heard that. Yeah, Samsung doesn't seem to be quite up with the play, um, and the stats were that that the Vodafone handsets are the third most popular handsets uh, in the country behind uh, behind Apple and uh, wow. and Samsung, which is uh, is is really curious. So. Um, I'll see if we can uh, what we can find out from them in, in, in terms of uh, this one. Probably need to check in with uh, with Samsung as well in terms of what they're uh, what what they're uh, doing. But at least Google have sort of you know they've done what they can with their own uh, devices. Um, but it does uh, it does leave you feeling a, a little bit uh, a little bit uncomfortable knowing that uh, these phones are at risk. Yeah, I'll be um, I'll be heading out after this and checking with our CTO just to make sure that when our apps are being used on Samsungs that they're nice and safe. So uh, yeah. I'm sure they will be. But uh, yeah, it's be interesting to see what happens. Well, the, 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 one of the challenges is the lower cost phones, which in many cases just don't get you know updates at all. Yeah. They're running older versions of Android. Um, so yeah, it's not an ideal um, picture. I've I've um, you know heard varying bits of information about the types of scenarios you can be hit. Um, yeah, some some people are saying, look, you've got to be connected to a, uh, a dodgy Wi-Fi access point to be at risk. 
but I also read something saying, look, you don't even have to be connected to the access point uh, as long as you're within range and it, uh, you know, your your phone uh, sees it, then you could be at risk. So um, I'm not sure if that one's entirely accurate, but um, no doubt we'll hear well, we'll hear pretty, we'll hear a bit more this this <laughs> this week. Yeah, if, I mean, if it was if they could just push uh, it to you, then that's that, quite that, scary. Um, that easy to hit you, then yeah, kind of kind of concerning. Uh, now. Always lots, lots of stuff going on um, in the world of uh, artificial intelligence, and of course, one of the uh, one of the AI as- assistants that uh, um, yeah has had a fair bit of media is uh, Microsoft's uh, Cortana. Uh, although, yeah, unfortunately, uh, like most of, most of these other assistants, really, it's other than uh, other than than Siri. Um, you know, generally not fully supported within a New Zealand context. Um, but I thought it was was interesting to see that Microsoft had been partnering with um, Johnson uh, Controls, who, uh, who do uh, thermostats, and they've unveiled this new um, uh, thermostat glass or, or glass, G-A-L-S, um, Online and it looks uh, looks incredibly uh, incredibly slick, and yeah, it incorporates I guess yeah Microsoft's uh, you know core Internet of Things uh, operating system version of, of Windows uh, ten that's uh, that that squeezed down to be able to go into uh, uh, into all manner of uh, all manner of devices. And uh, so you can, you, well, you will be able to in the future get this um, uh, smart thermostat that's actually got uh, um, you know, full-blown operating system in it. You can uh, talk to it and uh, you know get this sort of artificial intelligence, um, you know, smarts in terms of looking after uh, the environment in your in your home or. Or business, and you know the the video, um, you know highlights how be able to work out whether you're actually around or not. Are you, you know, are you on the premises? Well, if if not, then no need to, uh, you yeah. know, waste a whole lot of uh, energy keeping this, uh, uh, you know, keeping your your place cool or or, or warm, whatever you need. Yeah. Um, if there's actually no one around and you're not going to be back for uh, for a, for a, you know four or eight hours or whatever it happens to be. The um the thermostat world has really dominated the Internet of Things. You know, everyone seems to have popped up with a new. It started off with Nest. Uh, when I was living in the States, everyone was getting a new Nest. And, um, yep, yep. Um, you know, it all seems to be variations of the, the original Honeywell thermostat, which every second bungalow in California seems to have. Um, and so they've just, you know, they're just throwing some IoT stuff into into that. And the obvious, obviously the Cortana um as a play, I believe Nest has got Alexa as well plugged into it, so it's a, yeah. they've had to come back with something um, to to play in that space. But this is definitely cool. I always think with a thermostat that I'm the kind of guy that's like, well, I don't know how cold my house is going to be until I get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what's what's the point in me sending a Wi-Fi signal? But I get, but then I set my heat pump to start at five o'clock in the morning. So that means right. a lot, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a use for it, and some of these things are. I'm trying to think, you know, would I sit there and I'm sitting on my couch and talk to the wall and, and tell the uh, the wall to turn the temperature up by three degrees and it'd be cool. That'd be a lot of fun and um, just be interesting to see what else it can do as well. There'd be no doubt that there'd be an alarm system in that soon um, as well and there'd be 
run a bath for me, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you know, all these different things. Well, all the things tie together, don't yeah. they? And that, that's, I guess, the the interesting part is where it ultimately will lead over time, right? Yes. Once you've got all these different bits and pieces, if they can communicate well together, which, un, you know, undoubtedly they they will, you know, hopefully in the not too distant future, um, you know, you've got all these smarts working together, then, um, yeah, A, from, uh, uh, I guess, you know, conserving power perspective, that, you know, that that's pretty interesting, yes. I think, to people. If yes. you can save yourself, you know, I don't know. Let's just pick a number out of the air. If you could save yourself a hundred dollars a month on your uh, on your electricity, um, you know, within let's say your your office premises, um, then it becomes pretty easy to justify yes, dropping yeah. that bit of technology in. And you know, we we recently had uh, you know a new uh, air conditioning sort of system put across our our floor in the premises uh, here. And, you know, one of my first questions, and the landlord was arranging it, so it wasn't something that we were too deeply involved in other than having to uh, deal with some uh, some pretty hot temperatures, you know, because it was sort of uh, still <laughs> yeah. on the, the, the humid, hot end of, uh, of things before winter uh, kicked in. Uh, and, and it took them a few days to get it installed. But, you know, one of my first questions to them was, well, can we hook this in with Nest? And they're like, oh, what's Nest? Never heard of that. Oh, and, gosh. And I think, really, where are we at, New Zealand? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, somebody in the, in the, in the uh, you know, air conditioning and heating uh, type field doesn't, uh, hasn't, hasn't heard of Nest. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, well, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of curious. But, you know, we, st- we tie all these things together. Yeah, I think in a lot of cases they can they probably quite easily justify themselves from a cost perspective, uh, but then there'll be all the other smarts and 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 other good things that uh, that come with having the technology uh, in in place. Absolutely, I look I look can't wait to see a house in forty years time, a new build house in forty yeah, years time where you've yeah. got Tesla tiles on the roof which feed into a. You know, a Cortana system to run your household, which is charging the, the 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 Tesla energy pack on the side of your house, which is charging your car, which is warming up in the driveway, so it's nice and ready for you to hop in on a cold winter's morning. And uh, after your toaster has told your fridge that you know <laughs> the toaster's going stale, yeah, you know, all those things will happen. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's how these household operating systems will all tie in together, which will be fantastic. Well, they've got a bit of work to do on the security front, haven't they? When we, yeah. you know, hear issues about smartphones that are uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that are that are not yes. quite right, and um, you know, botnets that uh, take over our Internet of Things, or IoT uh, uh, devices. So, um, so that there's there's a bit of work to do on model four fronts, but I think most of the most of the thinking's been done, right? It's, I think uh, so. It's just connecting um, the dots. It's it's you know. It's, yeah, it seems like there's a huge amount that can actually be achieved pretty easily, and I'm sure there will be lots of lots of new ideas uh, yet to come. But you can just sort of sit down and imagine, uh, yeah, how how some of those dots might be connected and how uh, how cool it will will be. Yeah, it will be. It will yeah. be. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some ne- negatives of it too, right? If you don't have to get up to do anything because you 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 just you just talk and uh, an assistant yeah, hears you and it. <laughs> da- da- does everything for you, right? Yeah, you got your robot vacuum cleaner, which is then you know feeding you, picking up dishes as well, and feeding your dog and your cat, and then all these sorts of things. So yeah, it's not going to be much we're going to have to do, which is yeah. Well, it might that robot might have to come up to you and give you a bit of an electric shock yeah. if you've been. Uh, 
been uh, relaxing for for uh, for too long. Well, hopefully it feeds you the right thing, so exercise isn't too much of a worry either. You know, <laughs> could be a bit of bribery in there around what you're allowed to eat based on uh, absolutely uh, what you do. So well, I think one of the barriers yeah. as well is just the housing, right? You know, like I my house is 20 years old, and um, you know to re rig that uh, to be an electronic home, well, that's going to be a massive barrier to entry to any of the IoT types of things. Yeah, although those those costs will will come down, yes. become more and more accessible. I'm I'm sure as you know as we usually, as we're quite used to with technology. So uh, yeah. Um, now another thing, um, you know, in the in the space of of uh, curious new uh, technology is a startup that has been uh, putting. Um, Sensors and um, uh, well, actually, not so much sensors, more uh, cameras into uh, Uber and Lyft uh, vehicles, so that they can uh, basically, you know, go out and uh, uh, collect a, a huge amount of um, of data about uh, the streets and, and roads which those vehicles, uh, you know, travel on uh, today. And this is all, um, you know, part of an initiative to help, um, you know, driverless vehicles uh, develop. So, yeah, it's it's kind of uh, kind of curious in terms of what they're doing to uh, uh, map things out and, um, um, yeah, record imagery and and, mm. and so on. Um, seems like. Every man and his dog is kind of working in this uh, in some way towards giving us a uh, a future very very soon of uh, of self driving cars. Oh, look, and the sooner the better, if you ask me. And these guys, I found these guys really interesting because it brought to the surface what one of the challenges is, and that's having these HD um, high definition maps, which a lot of these self driving cars are going to rely on for for safety. And so, if they can outsource the consumption of of data through through sort of crowdsourcing that collection and paying people for it yeah then the safety parameters are just going to increase exponentially for all these self-driving cars i mean we can um, we can work while we're going over the harbour bridge on the way home you know much much sooner and we don't have to park in the city because our car will drive itself home and all these sorts of things um you know i don't i've got a a three-year-old and a a two-year-old and i don't think they'll be driving cars well i hope they won't be um yeah, that might be a bit ambitious, but we'll um, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, awesome, really clever guys. I see they both came out of the Tesla, uh, or three clever guys, both came out of the Tesla um, auto driving program as well. Yeah, yeah, and they're um, you know one of the things that they were highlighting is that roads aren't stagnant; they're they're always changing, whether it's road works or whether it's a you know a new intersection's gone in and uh you know my uh, commuter in this morning there was a new set of traffic lights that you know yep. hadn't opened yet um but i don't think i'd noticed it or seen it before so it's, it's obviously happened happened uh you know very uh, very recently and uh you know you've always got different things going on so you get you know you get this information you add that to whatever comes from um uh, you know your your um, you know local councils, what's happening in in um, from land transport and and, and so on, and uh, you put all that together, and you should end up with uh, with a pretty rich set of information 
that then will be available to the vehicle without it even using its own uh, own sensors. It's yes. already got this huge pool of data, yeah. and uh, you know I think that's got to uh, that's just got to help make these systems you know much more capable, bring down those sort of risks of of accidents. Um, and I guess the other the other bit that I'm I'm curious about because you know nothing seems to have been settled yet is the idea of infrastructure to vehicle and vehicle to vehicle communications because you ideally want all yeah. these these pieces to be to be ready pretty quickly right so they yeah, can at least absolutely. start putting them into uh, um, you know into vehicles now right well, it tie, all ties into our uh, Cortana um, thermostat doesn't it really you <laughs> want it all talking to each other and and if there's people if there's, they're crowdsourcing sourcing the collection of this data. Through, through smaller devices, and there's some benefit to the people that are that are doing that. Then, you know, our cars are going to be safer when when they finally hit a cattle stop and tie happy. <laughs> you know, so I think it's going to know what's going on. Yeah. And and New Zealand it always worries me with that a little bit because there are um, even the the penetration of Uber into most rural towns in New Zealand is still is still very uh, very low. Mm-hmm. Um, so so how are they going to make these these roads safe? How are they going to make all these um, updates as frequent and as constant as they need to be to make self-driving a reality and a safe reality all over New Zealand. It will be, be a big challenge. And what happens when they hit the when, – when I'm driving on a metal road now, I still panic some around the back blocks of Whangamata or something like that. It's still scary. Um, and so it's just how that constant learning happens. Yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, it's a very, very fascinating, uh, very fascinating uh, space, and it's uh, yeah, I, I guess it's it's just pleasing that we're we're hearing so many announcements, so much uh, development here. Um, it, it is curious that they've uh, they've come out of Tesla because, of course, and um, of course, you know, Tesla is collecting all this data from all those vehicles that are out on the road right now, uh, but they don't seem to be. Uh, doing what these guys are doing in terms of getting all this high definition uh, footage of the of the roads. So you know, I don't know whether this was um, you know something that yeah I don't, I don't know exactly how the idea came about where they'll be selling the concepts back to Tesla or who yeah. they'll be uh, they'll be selling their uh, data to. But of course, the the bigger pool of data that we've got. Um, you know that just ups the ups the ante in terms of the standards and, and risk mitigations. And Absolutely. So I mean, it's trying to think of what where's a similar network where they'd be able to get that in New Zealand um, at, a, at a local level. Right? Do you put it in the do you put it in the police cars or the and just because they're driving around a lot with taxis or, or not taxis? It's a bit of a terrible word to use in the world of tech. But um, um, uh, but you know how can we consume the data we need to to really drive? Self-driving mm, in New mm. Zealand, you know. That's, um, well, I, I, yeah, I would imagine if, if this is something that makes sense, then a lot of newer newer vehicles they will just roll. You know, they'll put that in there, uh, like Tesla does in terms of collecting data. Um, now, a little uh, local um, announcement over the weekend that uh, some people will be uh, curious about, and uh, I generally don't get too much involved in. Uh, and what's happening from a political standpoint, but you know sometimes this this news is uh, is relevant to us in in the tech world. And in fact, uh, you know I guess more and more we're we're finding that uh, you know the uh, the politicians play some pretty important uh, um, 
uh, play a pretty important part in in the role of where we we head as a country. Um, And this weekend was the announcement um, that the government uh, are putting a chunk of money uh, into investment in housing developments and, and all the the various pieces that that need to happen for uh, for these things to move forward, and certainly with a big uh, focus on on Auckland, where there's been a shortage of housing, uh, but where this sort of ties in from uh, from a, a tech perspective is that they are going to be uh, basically repurposing or renaming uh, Crown Fibre Holdings, which has been responsible for the ultra fast broadband initiative in New Zealand. And so Crown Fibre Holdings is going to be changing its name to Crown Infrastructure Partners. So that, uh, you know, I, I, I guess, and I haven't uh, delved into uh, uh, all, the, all the details, I don't think all the information is, uh, is out there um, just yet, but uh, yeah, my, um, my take on it is that that will allow them to uh, focus on what they need to from a housing infrastructure perspective, uh, but also they'll continue to be uh, overseeing things from a, a broadband uh, perspective in New Zealand as well. So uh, that side of it, uh, I don't imagine, will be, uh, uh, will be going away until, uh, until such time as all of that works completely. Yeah. They're, no, they're no longer, uh, they're no longer uh, needed maybe. So, uh, Sounds like yeah. quite a good uh, um, political rebrand as well in terms of being able to let them just do a whole lot more stuff, right? <laughs> if they're crown fibre, well, they probably can just do fibre in a number of ways and, uh, and so let them spread their wings a little bit more and along with that mandate. So, Well, I think... Yeah, if they can get out and get this stuff happening quickly, which you know I know there's that that's the concern, you know I think for a lot of people is when when's Auckland going to have yeah. uh, uh, sufficient uh, housing? When's when are those pressures going to come off? And uh, yeah, yeah, you know, certainly the, the the housing market has uh, has slowed down a, a lot here, um, but you know I think there's still lots of people yeah uh, moving into uh, moving into Auckland. Uh, you know, I'm I'm one of one of many that's moved from uh, elsewhere in the country and uh, found myself uh, in Auckland, and it you know it does seem that there's uh, uh, there's a fairly strong sort of uh, gravitational uh, pull towards <laughs> uh, uh, Auckland for for lots of people for all sorts of uh, all sorts of reasons. So uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was I'm, I'm born and uh, born and bred Aucklander, so <laughs> don't hold it against me. <laughs> Um, we'll see. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> now, uh, Microsoft have been working away with this sort of continuous update model on uh, Windows 10, and yeah, I think there's, there's certainly been some pretty good stuff that's uh, that's come come out of that uh, that change to the Windows uh, update model. In uh, especially there's the cyber security aspects where you know basically they're uh, they're able to uh, you know keep people's computers up to date on a on a um, um, a more consistent basis and really by encouraging people to move away from those older versions of windows and move on to this this 10 it does seem to be uh, closing a lot of uh, a, a lot of the the risk down that we've had in the past from a cyber security perspective um, but there are some other aspects to it uh, the the first one i i, I noticed uh, last week was that uh, microsoft seemed to have come a little bit unstuck with how they provide support for some of the lower end computers, uh, those with um, the older 
uh, atom uh, chips in them, which are known as uh, uh, Clover Trail. And basically, uh, Microsoft seems to have hit a bit of a, a bit of a brick wall there, and aren't going to be uh, able to provide updates to people running those um, those lower cost computers. Mm. And I mean, those could be uh, those could be yeah, really cheap sort of. I mean, we used to use the, the term netbook, but those those really uh, low low cost. Uh, uh, laptops, uh, the sort of things that. Um, well, it's a big um, call to make because it's tough. Uh, like even for people like Microsoft or you know, supporting the lower end things, and if there's not that much adoption, we have a similar problem with our platform where you've got some people using Internet Explorer five or something, and there's point three percent of people using it to run your software, and you've got to sit back and go, well, do we just say no? Yeah. Because we spend you know, a certain amount of money every year supporting that one particular platform, so I understand that, and it's mm. um, you know I think you've, you 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 can't support everything. Yeah, well, that seems to be the case here, and so um, you know those who are wanting to get the Windows Ten creators update uh, on on some of those, uh, basically they're uh, they're saying look they're no longer actually supported by uh, Intel who make the chips. And yeah, in this case, um, those, those particular um, users are, are going to be uh, going to be a little bit uh, a little bit stuck. So um, yeah, that that will will certainly impact a um, you know, a reasonable chunk of people. I think there'll still be security updates coming uh, coming through for, uh, for for some time. Um, but yeah, it's not a not a particularly uh, nice situation when you find your uh, your left. Uh, High and uh, high, yeah. high and dry. Fortunately, these are usually lower cost, uh, lower cost you know devices. So um, you know they're not going to be too many sort of. Um, well, yeah, they're not not going to be too many expensive devices no. out there, and okay. and these aren't brand new machines. So uh, uh, you know, generally they get replaced. How old would the a- the atoms be? Do you think? Um, I'm trying to remember Clover Trail. When did Clover Trail come to uh, come to market? Um, That's the only question you have there, isn't it? If there's a yeah, I think it. I think it was certainly um, window when you know in the Windows eight um, uh, timing. But it, you know, it doesn't mean that people haven't bought some of these things um, in you know more re- more recently because often these things do. Uh, uh, you know, do stick around for a while and 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 get offered, um, you know, for sale for a number of years. So, um, yeah, it's um, I'm, I'm sure will up will upset uh, a few people out there. Um, the other bit where Windows 10 was in the media was around um, the old uh, Microsoft Paint app, uh, <laughs> which they they're saying is deprecated in the next update to. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to Windows Windows Ten, bit of laughter over there. Have you have you been uh, you've been a, a user oh, look, of, an of this in the user past? Of... You, I mean, I see you using your Mac now, but uh... <laughs> look, if there's anything that would take me back to using a PC, it would be be Microsoft Paint. But they're about to drop that too. So, you know, as soon as they dropped Clipart, I was angry enough. But um, <laughs> but you know, Paint as well. That was uh, certainly defined my early tech career. Yeah, yeah. as the hours spent. Uh, Drawing uh, devil horns on, you know, JPEGs or something along those lines. So, oh, um, wow. why would they? Why would they get rid of it? You know, that's the those. Well, classics. they've got their three D version of Paint now, which can yeah. still do, t- th- uh, you know, two D type uh, yeah. type stuff. But it does mean that it's a new app to learn. My my guess is that they always want to, you know, move people towards the newer tools. And yes. of course, the the three D uh, Paint 
app is actually capable of doing some pretty cool stuff. <laughs> it's geared up for using with your with your stylus and so yeah. on. It's not that hard to use. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, at, 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 at some point they do like to encourage people to move uh, along a little bit, so you're not left uh, completely high high and dry. But that said, I was never a, a big user of uh, of paint usually had access to something a little bit more powerful um, so uh, so I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not feeling too paint and of course there's also lots of other uh, you know competing uh, products out there in the market including open source ones that are, that are free and are, yeah and are much better so I, I don't think people will be in too much pain but uh, I'll still I, miss the spray can feature you know <laughs> the spray can feature the pixelated spray can dots will uh, you know, that'll be sorely missed. I don't know if that's even in the current uh, the current version. Oh, it's it. had a few changes <laughs> over the years. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, now, one one thing um, that was quite interesting, uh, we heard a little while ago about um, Delta Airlines in the in the US um, working with fingerprint authentication. Um, for for boarding passes, and this is now uh, fully available um, in the US at um, uh, at I think this is in uh, Washington DC at the uh, Reagan Washington uh, National uh, Air, Airport, um, and those who are members of uh, Delta's uh, loyalty program. Uh, Sky Miles uh, that have uh, that have signed up are basically able to uh, able to use um, fingerprint authentication. Great. So you can no no boarding pass, no electronic boarding pass, even on your phone needed. You just have to give away your fingerprint and trust that to the airline. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Oh, look, I love it. I think um, you give away. I mean, I've travelled around the US a lot over the last four years, and you you give away finger fingerprints when you arrive Whenever in the you US the so, right? does, yeah. so you're all yeah. over the place the more automation that can be introduced into airports even though it does scare people in terms of data and privacy but the flow on effect to efficiency and improving the airport travel experience um, for me is, is worth it right? Mm. As, a, as a regular business traveller the faster I can move through those places the happier I am, and the more secure they are, the happier I am, and I see that doing both those things. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, there's a lot of time that does get wasted in uh, in airports, and I guess I'm someone that that doesn't spend too much time in airports because I usually arrive as close as I can to the time yeah. that you need to be uh, through on on the plane. I don't tend to miss too many flights, but um, you know I can cut it down to the wire from uh, <laughs> from time to time. So uh, for me, certainly, if there's something that uh, that helps me sort of you know scoot through, get on the plane uh, very quickly, uh, is is something that I'm uh, I'm reasonably reasonably keen on. Um, interestingly, they're also uh, going to be rolling this stuff out. Um, you know more more broadly and access to their uh, their lounges as well, so that's all good. Um, but apparently, um, yeah, you've got there are some um, some costs and you know bits and pieces involved in the um, um, in the program, the way that they're uh, they're tying it all together. But it um, overall looks uh, looks pretty cool. Yeah, look, I think it sounds like a, a great step in the right direction. And as soon as we can get rid of passports and have that based on biometrics or something, then uh, then that would be great too. Mm. Um, now, I don't know if you caught the uh, the the media 
uh, coverage around Alpha Bay, but there's there's been a you know bunch of stuff on this, um, you know, over over a period. And but last week, uh, you know, a whole whole lot of info uh, came out, and um, yeah, I guess you know, pretty uh, pretty interesting reading um, uh, reading about this, and um, I guess Alpha Bay was sort of described as a as a uh, virtually an eBay uh, for uh, for illicit uh, things like. Uh, um, you know, weapons and drugs and uh, uh, fake uh, passports and, and ID uh, that was operating on the uh, on the dark web. And for those that are interested in in this stuff, boy, there's some there's some great content out there. Um, absolutely worth reading some of the some of the stories and and behind the scenes on it on, online uh, because it's incredibly fascinating and. Uh, and then you know, hearing hearing the story of um, um, of yeah how they uh, how they managed to uh, how they managed to uh, uh, you know take it down and uh, um, the the associated online um, marketplace I think it was out of France the other one and how they they tied these uh, you know two things together and managed to actually. Uh, uh, I guess you know track lots of people that were uh, uh, were involved in, in illegal illegal activities through these marketplaces. Yeah, it's um, you can't help but get curious and a little bit interested in this sort of stuff, can't you? It's, you could almost run five separate podcasts off this one topic. Um, <laughs> the dark web. As soon as you hear the word, you know you think, well, how do you how do you explore that just to have a look? Yeah, um, and how do you get in and these sorts of things? So um, just yeah, you know, curiosity is, is interesting, but. The, the horrible thing about it is, you know, the types of crimes and, and things that occur in the dark web, which is, which is a very, you know, serious aspect. And I was glad to hear that they've been shut down. And, um, and, uh, you know, you can imagine the trading that goes on there and the, this, the horrific things. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's all yeah the other good. marketplace was called, um, Hansa. And it, yeah, it seemed like after Alpha Bay was, um, was shut down. Basically, masses of people uh, flocked to uh, to Hansa. Um, I don't know about the pronunciation of that, but that's my <laughs> that's my take on it. And um, but that was actually under um, um, under you know law enforcement control at the time. So all these people were like, "Oh, we'll go over to this other marketplace and uh, and we'll still be able to trade uh, over there." But uh, you know, meanwhile, actually. Uh, they were they were being tracked, and uh, they apparently gathered uh, ten thousand, uh, uh, you know, postal addresses of, of customers, and you know, loads of uh, messages and other other information. So, um, yeah, very uh, very curious stuff. There's some you know some sad you know stuff through this this case as well, and uh, um, you know the the death of um, you know the, the the chap that was running uh, supposedly running Alpha Bay. Um, but uh, yeah, still, still, I think um, you know, well, well worth, uh, well worth a read. I, I can imagine, you know, this storyline being uh, being much more interesting than a than a lot of uh, you know fictional uh, oh, movies. Yeah. So you know, I, I, I'd be picking. We've got to see something coming out of this in the future, right? <laughs> and you wonder what you know. It'd be nice to see a map of the dark web in New Zealand. You know, what actually is it, and uh, you know who. Who are the players, and how it would just be be interesting. Um, 
it's almost worth a t- almost worth a TV show, you know. Right? Yeah, the deep dive into this underworld because I'm yep. sure yep. you hear so much about gangs and things this this high level in your face crime, but this the more sinister stuff I can imagine is really happening in the dark web in New Zealand. Just a lot of different bad horrific stuff. Well, we're we're kind of in this world now where um, you know encryption is is just the norm. So. You know, really, there's a lot that can uh, that can a lot that can take place. That's yeah. uh, you know, not you know, not necessarily sort of too far away, or you know, things can be hidden very, very easily. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, you don't uh, you don't you know necessarily uh, need you know um, the the dark web to be to be achieving uh, a lot yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly that's that's part of the, uh, I guess, tool set for keeping things hidden, right? Yeah, that's so, right. Um, keep it yeah. safe. Keep it locked up. Keep it compliant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all yeah. those things. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see what else comes out from that. So you, will you be offering your uh, your services uh, for Genoa <laughs> Pay on uh, on the dark web? On the dark any, web, any, I, any I very much doubt it. I very much doubt it. Okay. Well, you better t- you better tell us about Genoa Pay, otherwise we'll uh, we'll get to the end of the show and we won't have heard anything. <laughs> so so um, I guess you came onto the the you, you've been on the radar for a while, but um, um, you know a couple of weeks ago there was obviously this uh, funding. Uh, uh, funding events, so sort of run us through what that was, and you know what's been your part of uh, this uh, the, ex- the accelerator uh, with the Ice House and and so on, and uh, actually what you've been up to. Yeah, cool. Look, I so I came out of a corporate background and never done a startup really before, and uh, founded Genoa Pay and uh, sort of knew how to sell things and knew a bit about tech and how to build a few things and knew enough about payments to understand right. This is how you derive revenue from a payment system, and um, it's about adding adding value to the consumer or merchant experience. Um, so I went about building Genoa Pay, which is, uh, which is basically uh, an application which takes a total purchase value, splits it into 10 weekly instalments, doesn't charge the consumer anything at all, and we derive our revenue from a merchant services fee. So it's um, for us, it's building different layers and different distribution channels for that particular product and um, and making it accessible on mobile or, or any device. Um, so I had that idea and that concept and it was, okay, right, how do we how do we go about this? How do we launch a business? How do we attract a team and how do we get money so we can sprint and, and beat the competition? Um, so I got offered a, a, I applied and got offered a, a place in the Flux Accelerator as part of the Ice House um, program there. Um, they offered a good amount of money uh, as opposed to some other accelerators. So you, you got a big wad of cash, which you could actually do something with. That's great. Um, and they didn't take a, a huge chunk of your company as well. So, so um, I guess if people were critical of accelerators, they sometimes are critical of that aspect. You know, you give up a huge chunk of equity for nothing. Um, but with the, the Flux program, I didn't find that at all. I found the seed investment to be pretty and a pretty standard across sort of multiple markets that that's what they took. Um, so in the mentoring, the program, the pressure they put you under, uh, the supported pressure was all great. Um, and you know we're we're looking at now we've we're oversubscribed and could take one point three million dollars in now if we wanted to um, f- as as an end result of that process. Um, so for a, a startup in New Zealand, that's really quite a good result. Um, I, I think if you just look at metrics alone, um, that's been been good. So during that process, we built a team. 
I think being in the accelerator enabled me to attract some people, um, which perhaps I might not have been able to attract. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a great experience. I mean, the company is in a very strong position now. We're looking at some taking on some pretty large national accounts now, um, and you know, arguably be able to give our investors a bit of a return pretty quickly on that. So no, that, it's been that's good. Great. So uh, talk us through what the service actually looks like. So from a consumer end, I've heard it described as sort of a, a, a form, you know, a bit like um, lay-by for the, for the modern age. Yeah. Is that your focus, that people would pay for goods up front before they get them, or have you got an option to sort of pivot and also, uh, you know, be some sort of, uh, you know, financing so they get their goods up front as well? Or? Yeah, so look, we... All of our customers get their goods up front, so right, we okay, have we okay. have done that. Right. Um, so, so the biggest part about Genopo is it's for services and products. So, yeah, okay. if I walk you through a typical scenario, let's say you go into a pit stop store in, in New Zealand and you need to get a set of tyres and a warrant and a service, you go into the pit stop and it's five hundred bucks, and you think, wow, that's you know that was pretty unexpected. That's a bit annoying. Um, so as a consumer, you um, will see a sign in there saying you can pay with Genoa Pay. So $50 a week for 10 weeks, there's no interest, there's no fees, it doesn't cost you anything more than the $500. So it's quite an attractive value proposition to the consumer. Um, so you ask to pay with Genoa Pay, the merchant has an interface uh, which asks them to enter four details. That sends you a text message. Uh, it's got the purchase price in that text message. You click the link through. And if it's your first time using Genoa Pay, it's just a web-based app, so you don't have to download anything. You have to set up an account, which takes two minutes, and we ask you a few questions. Um, you enter your payment method. The great part about Genoa Pay is that you can pay either from uh, a credit card or debit card or directly from your bank account. So that's a little bit of tech we've built in the back end there to uh, sort of disrupt, I guess, the normal credit card model. Um, and then you take the first instalment on the first day there, um, and then nine more instalments over the next nine weeks, and you walk out of the store, your car gets fixed, you get what you need, the merchant gets paid. Um, so we fund the merchant within three days um, for that particular $500. We take our fee out of that $500, and it's just a far nicer, better experience for everyone involved. Right. Um, and now that translates also onto an online platform too. So there might be a Payment Express button um, on the particular website. Next to that button, there'll be a Genoa Pay button. Exact same process. So it divides the total purchase price by 10 installments. You get what you need immediately. We fund the merchant. And the cool thing with that is the merchant can advertise the price at a 90% reduction. So you have a one installment price advertised. So it's a bit of a marketing tool as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's pretty cool. And so y- your fee structure obviously in- you know, includes enough room for whatever risk there is associated yeah. with those transactions. You have to have some smarts to weigh up and make sure you're actually happy to, Absolutely. to, to do a transaction yeah. involving you know, a particular individual and you collect enough information al- along the way to, uh, to give you confidence or to decline them as, as being somebody that you will uh, um, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We usually let most people through to pay for a certain amount with Genoa Pay. So the maximum you can spend is $1,500 on Genoa Pay at one time. Um, But say you've got quite a bad bad credit rating for whatever situation you've been in in the past, it's very, very common, Um, then we'll still allow you to spend a certain amount based on that particular score. And so if that scenario happens, then we'll split that smaller amount up over 10 weeks, but you'll need to pay a larger deposit. Um, as the first instalment to uh, to manage that risk profile, 
Right. And the the retailers, they just pay the same fee regardless, do they? Or is it Generally, it's volume-based. Yeah, um, okay. So you might get a um, – uh, Joe runs one mechanic and um, Ty Happy, and uh, he's putting through a couple of thousand dollars a week. He'll generally be on a higher – Higher rate than a a, a Ford motor transport company that's putting through you know, a million bucks every couple of weeks. Right, and what are those sort of what are the ranges? Yes, yeah, so we would for the high end um, people who are putting through a lot of volume, um, so anywhere north of a couple of hundred thousand dollars a month, um, that'd be somewhere between four and five percent, and basically creeping down from those sort of volumes, the highest someone would ever be on is around 7.5%. Mm. Um, and then that sort of creeps back from there based on volume. Yep, yep, yep. It's very smart. It's well, cool. we think so. Look, the, the what's been so great to see is the impact it's had on retailers and merchants. So we've had some stores come back to us and we've increased average order values by 22%. We've increased conversions by about 20%. So... Even though we're charging 5.5% or something along those lines to a merchant, you know, we're increasing and growing their business um, by you know, over 15%. So, so for me, that's the best satisfaction is, you know, our, our, our vision is, you know, to make, to grow merchants, um, and, you know, grow merchants and make life affordable for our end users. Um, and, and we're doing that, which is awesome. Um, and so, you know, this money that we're getting in and raising at the moment um, is going to really give us the ability to just go for it and scale this across New Zealand. Um, yep. And we've set ourselves a goal to have a thousand merchants by Christmas. Um, yeah, and so we're on track for that. Mm. Um, and yeah, so that's that's really exciting. And when you put all your eggs in one basket as, as a founder of a startup, you, know, you, you you do throw absolutely everything at it. Um, mm. Mm. You know, and, and so for me and my family, it's been a massive punt um, mm. from from being an executive in, in California on a great wicket um, to saying, hey, I'm going to throw it all in and move back home because um, yep. I want to give it a go. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I feel like we're, we're on the right track and there's a number of things that can still go wrong, but, um, you know, it's um, it's exciting. Yeah. Oh, well, best best of luck with that journey. Thank um, you. You know, I guess I've, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge encourager of people to buy stuff on the tab, but... Yeah. Um, the idea of splitting it up over over ten weeks rather than buying something over over a period of of years, I think, is is much more um, palatable, and it, you know, it, it, it's something that doesn't leave people probably uh, you know too too buried. So, um, you well, know, that's it, it. it seems yeah. like a um, yeah a, a much softer and, and nicer uh, end, end of things. So. Yeah, and that's what we want to be. You know, we we don't want to be finance. Um, you know, we we fundamentally we want to be a marketing company. Um, and it's a, it's, it's about creating the most affordable way to pay in the world. Um, and this is arguably more affordable than cash. It's more affordable than any credit card or, or, you know, a thousand times more expensive than a, uh, more affordable than a payday loan. Um, and so if people can start paying this way, um, look, it's, it's much better, right? We think we'll save New Zealand hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest repayments that can go back into the economy. Mm, mm. Good stuff. All right. Well, um, I think that's us for this episode. Um, oh, I should mention uh, last week we uh, we talked about Vodafone's new um, new smartphones. We're going to be giving away two of those next uh, next uh, next week. Um, we will be sending out the email to those um, that are on my email list uh, next Monday. Um, so. Make sure you're on that list if you're uh, if you're wanting to um, 
have a chance. The um, um, you know because we don't have a, a million uh, listeners, and usually only a small percentage of uh, uh, listeners end up signing up for the mailing list. So you, you're actually in with uh, reasonable odds if you're interested. Um, and to sign up, just go to paulspain.com slash updates, and that's where you sign up for my email updates. And, um, yeah, as I say, next Monday we'll be uh, we'll be sending out that uh, um, that competition. So um, pretty easy. All right, now, um, where do people uh, track you down, Sean, if they're, uh, if they're wanting to follow you? You're on uh, yeah, Twitter look, regularly? Yeah, or? look, we are. Genoa Pay, you know, our handle's at Genoa Pay HQ. Um, but look, what we'd like people to do is um, go to genoapay.co.nz, join our platform. It's completely free. And um, over the next month or so, we'll be announcing some pretty big updates um, as to the retailers you can go and start using Genoa Pay at. Um, so yeah, com. click on the Join Now button and just sign up, have a look around, and um, and you'll see some great offers coming through pretty soon where you can get what you need and pay over 10 weekly instalments. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Uh, people can track me down on uh, Twitter, Paul Spain. Uh, you're welcome to ping uh, me a connection on uh, on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect that way. Just put a note in there uh, letting me know that you're uh, you're, you're a listener to the, the podcast. Um, or on Facebook where, um, yeah, one of the things that I've been uh, doing over the last few months is a, is a weekly video. You might not always have a, have a chance to uh, listen into every episode of the New Zealand Tech Podcast, uh, but my video is usually three to four minutes long uh, each week, and there's just one topic that I uh, drill into. Um, they're also pretty friendly to share with uh, friends and and family. Maybe aren't uh, you know super tech enthusiasts, but uh, you know they're on they're on topics that are quite relevant to people. Uh, my my latest video, I talk a little bit about the the two sides of social media, the uh, you know the, some of the negative aspects as 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 well as the the good side. Uh, so, um, so there's some interesting uh, tips in there, um, and you can track me down uh, there on um, on on Facebook. dot uh, com slash Paul Spain official for my uh, my public page. All right, well that's us for this week, everyone. Um, we'll look forward to uh, catching up again next week. See ya. Thank you. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.